We uh, are in the book of Proverbs, a wisdom series. This will go for one more month, and then we will adjust starting on September 4th with a new series. Um, and this morning, we're talking about the book of Proverbs as it relates to money and resources. Now, if you're looking for like a point A, point B kind of talk, then I would encourage you refer to last year, July, that a teaching on generosity that's very much point A, point B, point C, probably knowing me, D, E, F, somewhere in there to get as much across as possible. Uh, also, this May, I did a teaching on contentment and generosity as juxtaposed against the ideas of craving and greed. So this idea of contentment, what it looks like to live into that during the Paradox series. So that would be another one I would refer to. Uh, my hope this morning is to have a bit more of a conversation, kind of a little bit more of a back and forth. Um, and to be honest, we have not had a back and forth like this for several years, since before COVID. So before COVID, I would regularly get up, we would have some conversations, you might dialogue with one another, you might dialogue in a group, we would respond to each other. Uh, it felt good. It, didn't seem like it would make a lot of sense coming off of a year of not being together and everyone in masks to welcome everyone to just start sharing out loud and with each other. So we've kind of put that on pause. And so this might be a bit of shaking off the rust as we engage in this conversation and dialogue about generosity and the book of Proverbs. Now, I say all that and give you one more warning. This could absolutely bomb. Now, you typically don't want to start off a talk by saying it's going to absolutely bomb because then everyone's prepared to go, man, that talk was a bunch of trash as they walk out, okay? Now, here's where I would say the little bit of reverse psychology that I started with will come in handy because I said you're going to be providing some of that content and material in the dialogue. So if it bombs, it's like, just as much on you, kind of, as it is on me. So that feels nice that we're in this together, right? Um, so I'd like you to start off with a little bit of a thought experiment. You probably received a sheet of paper on the way in. If you did not, um, that's probably because we ran out right at the very end. Jerusha has a few more. She also has some pens. Also, feel free to type it out on your phone or write it out on your kid's puzzle or whatever it is on the clipboard that you have in front of you. Um, we're going to have a little thought experiment where we write down some ideas related to money. So here's what I want us to do. You can either uh, kind of front and back this on the sheet of paper or draw like a line down the middle and have two columns. But I want us to think about two ideas related to money. The first being this, how does society describe and think about and talk about money and resources and possessions? And how does the church tend to speak about money, resources, and possessions? So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, and let's start with society. How does society speak about this idea of money. How does it think about it, act about it, value it? 
When you think about society, I'll give you about 30 seconds. Write down as much as you can about how society responds to money. All right, now, either on the other side of your sheet or on the back side of your sheet, write down religion. How does religion speak about, and this is where I would encourage you, maybe talk to a neighbor, somebody next to you, maybe get their opinion. How does religion, the church, tend to speak about, describe money, resources, finances, all that kind of stuff, right? So feel free, I'll give you about a minute on this one because you might be talking to somebody else and uh, write down as much as you can on this as well and then we'll dialogue a little. Okay. Uh, this is where we start to shake off the rust a little bit and hopefully prepare us for the second half of the talk. Um, just start with society. How does society speak about it? You can just kind of shout it out one after another. I'll start us so you get an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, society, I think, sees money as a god, right? Like sex and power, other gods, but money is certainly idolized as a god. How else does society think about, describe, act, value money? Go ahead, fire away. Say that. More is better, absolutely. The more you have, the better. Okay, what else? Again. Okay, measure of your value or worth as a person. So maybe your pocketbook kind of defines a little bit about who you are and how important you are. Yeah. Absolutely. A golden statue. Did I hear that right? Like an idol that everybody wants to worship, more or less. Yeah. Exodus 32, golden calf. Absolutely. Someone else. That means you have it all together. If you've got money, you've got it all together. Good. Power and influence. Good. Any others out there? A zero-sum game, right? A lot of times it's competitive. If you've got it, I, that means I'm missing it, so I've got to figure out how to get it from you. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, so figure out how to collect more and more of it. All right? Return on investment. That's a big one. Answer to all your problems. Life will be better if you have the money, right? Doesn't buy happiness, but it sure comes pretty darn close, right? Um, any others come to mind? Okay. Yeah, shame in comparison. So maybe you have it or don't have it, and you're comparing yourself to those who do. Good. We're now going to flip, and you're doing a fantastic job, by the way. We're going to flip and talk about how does the church tend to view or talk about finances, money, etc. Okay? Fire away. Much the same as the world, unfortunately, yes. Okay? Good. Someone else on a more positive note. 
Okay? Sometimes it's more about this stuff than the people. Good. Someone else? Yeah, blessed are the poor, for they'll inherit the kingdom. Or a lot of times churches say, blessed are you if you're wealthy, because that must mean the favor of God. So you have these juxtaposed ideas. Yeah, very good. How else does the church tend to speak about it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So some churches, when they talk about money, they talk about it as the more money that comes in, the more programs we can offer, the more stuff that's going on. And so if you want a bigger, more fun, like, social club, let's, let's do that. Uh, right here. Okay, not a problem. Okay, gift to the church illustrates trust to God. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Yeah. Good. Okay, so some people, uh, some churches want more money, more money equals more power, more influence. Very good. Yeah, Katie, you were going to say something? Yes, love of money is the root of all evil. It's temporary, fleeting. Don't put too much trust or dependence on it. Okay, I'll toss out a couple others. Uh, Stewardship is held up as like this... uh, Nobody really knows how to define it, but we still like to talk about it. It's like this great thing, stewardship. Um, we also sometimes say you can't outgive God, right? As long as you put it in these buckets right over here. We want, don't want to like, you know, don't outgive God out there, you know, outgive God in here. Um, I also think, sadly, there is this view within the church and maybe it's because of the history of the church that we tend to view money or finances as somehow we idealize poverty, okay? So taking vows of poverty or saying we should go without or figuring out how to say the person who goes without is more significant than the person who didn't go without, right? Or, as several of you alluded to, please give as much as possible so if, if money is the root of all evil, if you give it to the church, it kind of makes it good again, and we can be like money launderers for Jesus. It's kind of more or less the way we kind of talk about it, right? So you have these interesting dynamics related to money within the church, and we often see them in binaries. So if you were to look at your list, you're seeing like, well, maybe good versus evil, right versus wrong. Um, someone that uses money in a better way than somebody else or to have more of it, you get the idea. Um, But Proverbs has this really interesting way where it forces us to look at money a little bit differently. So Proverbs, first of all, is both descriptive and prescriptive, meaning it tells us how things are, but also tries to inform us and tell us how things ought to be. So you're getting a picture of what is really happening in the eyes of those writing wisdom literature, but also a perspective of what should happen. So Proverbs tends to give us warnings, right? Uh, Warnings that money can corrupt relationships, that it can ruin uh, friendships. There is talk about how um, the danger of wealth 
means that you could have a false sense of security. Or if you want wealth so much, you begin to try to defend wealth. And as you do, you basically harden your heart to both God and your neighbor, right? Because you can't love both God and money. And so Proverbs also invites us So it invites us with wisdom to give generously to God, to give generously to others, to be a conduit, so to speak, of God's blessing, that as he blesses you, you in turn then bless others. So all of this is wrapped up in the book of Proverbs. But Proverbs also has some deep nuance to it. And what I mean by that is what we would prefer Proverbs to say is if you're poor then you did something wrong, or if you're poor, you did something right. But what Proverbs tends to do is say that poverty could be a result of your laziness, or it could be a result of institutional and kind of um, radical systemic injustice. It can be both. Or sometimes we want the Bible to say, man, if you're wealthy, then that means God has smiled with favor on you. And Yet Proverbs says, if you're wealthy, it could be because of hard work. It could be because you trusted God. It could be because you made wise investments or you were faithful or you were generous. But it could also be because you're corrupt and unrighteous and don't look out for the other and have a greedy hand and don't want to include other people. And so where it becomes interesting is Proverbs is saying whether you have it or don't have it does not dictate the character or quality of who you are as a person and how you live. So it forces us, Proverbs does, to wrestle with the text, to think about it differently, to ask ourselves some challenging questions. And as I was going through the book of Proverbs, there's one particular proverb that caught my attention uh, that I thought would be worth a bit of a dialogue. It is Proverbs 30, seven through nine. It'll be on the screen, it says this, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the author is saying, give me neither poverty nor riches. The two extremes we kind of were discussing at the beginning, give me neither poverty nor riches. It's almost as if, if you've been around New Community for any length of time, that perhaps the author is proposing a third way, a different way of looking at it that isn't binary, that isn't just one way or the other way, but is not either or, but some unique kingdom way of looking at finances in a radically different posture. And so, we might ask ourselves, what does that even look like? How do you value neither poverty nor riches? How do you find a space? How do you even pray for that? Is that what we're called to pray for? Lots of questions should be coming up. I wanna pause there for a minute and tell you about a recent experience of mine and kind of use it as a picture of how I want us to think about generosity. Uh, So not this week, but last week, I went to Greenville, South Carolina to meet with some leaders and some conversations around coaching and 
Um, part of the activities, this group got together and had a dining experience. Now, I don't often talk about dining experiences. I am not a foodie, so to speak. If it's food and it tastes good, then I'm a foodie, right? Um, that's kind of the extent. I like the experience at times, but I have friends that are like big into food. So I go to this particular venue, and I sit down, and they begin to describe uh, a Georgian supra. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but supra means tablecloth, and uh, the Republic of Georgia is known for these massive feasts. So what they do is they have this, what feels like a forever long table, and it doesn't matter if you're friends or if you came together, everybody sits at this common table. From one end to the other, you're across from people you've maybe briefly met or never met before, and you sit down for this feast that lasts for hours. And uh, throughout the night, more and more courses come out and they put something else on the table, and part of why they call it the supra for the tablecloth is before the end of the night, you can't see the tablecloth, right? That the feast has become so big and so, like they don't even take the plates off. If it like was eaten and it's, done, they just leave it there, and it just keeps kind of piling up. And the beauty of this particular feast is that not only does it last for hours, but what I was told is they have a very important aspect related to toasting. So toasting, they will get wine, they will get a cup, probably not as cool as this, I just pulled it out of the back, it's tarnished a bit, don't worry about it. And what they'll do is they will uh, basically communicate who is the leader of the procession or the idea of feasting. And that person is called a tamada. So the tamada will stand almost the whole feast. He'll stand at the end of the table. And if you can imagine me at the end of the table and the table going all the way kind of to the back and people along the side and meals are coming out. And Every now and then, glasses would be raised and a toast would be offered. And the tamada would be the one that determines every single toast that happens. And there are usually 16 toasts throughout the night. So it starts off, the tamada steps forward, begins to describe the gathering of friends or strangers, and then starts with a toast. Now, throughout the 16 toasts of the evening, they toast all kinds of things. They toast love, they toast community, they toast friends and acquaintances, uh, they toast then and now, so thinking about something in your past and then bringing it into the future. They toast those who are on the outside, strangers now being brought inside, which is the idea of hospitality. They toast to those who made the food, to the hands that prepared the glasses that hold the wine, to the plates, those that brought the food to the place, those who are the farmers that grew it. They toast to art and beauty. They toast to friends that have been lost. They toast to all kinds of deep and meaningful and provocative things. And what's so fascinating is the tamada, you can't touch your drink until he's done, but he'll stand there two, three, four, five minutes going on about the importance of a particular toast. And then 
He'll say a Georgian word for cheers, and then everybody drinks. Now, the tamada is supposed to pound the whole thing and then get a refill. So the dude needs to be able to hold his wine, okay? Um, but that is the experience. But here's what captured me. The first toast to kick off the whole evening is a toast to wine, so I was curious, why would you toast or start with wine itself? Now, what I did not know is that uh, Georgian culture, that there is a long, long history of wine. In fact, they would say it's the birthplace of wine. I know Italians might kind of get into a bit of a scuffle over that, but there is a long-standing and sacred tradition to wine. And they start with wine because they believe that wine is the meeting of heaven to earth. So they talk about the importance of wine, the importance of heaven meeting earth. And they talk about the sun and the rain and the things that come from above as connecting with that which comes from the earth. So the nutrients and the, the sustenance and the vine and your hands in the dirt and this connection between what is the earth and what is heaven is met in this particular cup for our enjoyment, and this is the cup that brings us all together. And so the Tamada goes and describes this connection of heaven to earth. Now, that language obviously jumped off the page for me because we often talk about the meeting of heaven to earth, right? where kingdom comes and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That the earth was perfectly created in shalom, that everything was as it was intended to be and it was whole and healthy and vibrant. And then it became less than and brokenness entered the world and there was this desire to get back to the garden, back to wholeness, completeness, peace, Shalom. But every now and then what you have in the midst of our brokenness is this divine connection between heaven and earth where something comes from above and connects with something that is real and earth and tangible. And in that moment, the sacred happens. That moment, something divine takes place. And so the Tamada speaks to this sacred and speaks to the importance of community. And it got me thinking over these last couple weeks, what if we viewed our resources this way? What if we viewed it as the taste that's on your tongue, as the meeting of heaven and earth, as this sacred space where that which is divinely supplied from above is deeply connected to that which is real and tangible and the fruit of our labor. And somehow in the midst of that, kingdom comes and God's will be done because of finances. If that was true, if your finances, if your pocketbook, if your bank account, if your wallet, if your credit card, if all of your stuff that you drive, hold, the things you... Um, possess or own where you live, if all of that was the meeting of heaven and earth, how would it change your perspective? What would be different 
How would it adjust the way we look at what we have, what we own? If that was true, how would that change your perspective? Here's what I want you to do. Take a minute, pull out that sheet of paper, and say to yourself, if we viewed our resources as the meeting of heaven and earth, just like you might view wine as this sacred thing, how would it change? Maybe not for you, let's say, but in general, how would it change for this community of faith, for those who call themselves followers of Jesus, to view our resources as the meeting of heaven and earth? And what I want to do is have just a little dialogue on what you're writing down and see where it takes us, okay? So I'll give you about a minute to do it. Jot it down. Okay, um, here's what I want us to do, very similar to what we did before when we shared. Feel free to raise your hand or shout out a particular response. But before we just start like popcorn shouting them out, let's shout out one and see if there might be a little bit more we can chat about related to it, okay? And maybe it connects to somebody else's, so then feel free to share that and see if, we'll just see where it goes, okay? Take a few minutes to do this, and, um, and then we'll kind of wrap up, all right? So, talk to me. What would change, not just for you, but what would change for us as a church, a community, as a people following God, if we saw our resources as this divine meeting of heaven and earth? Not all at once, but yeah. 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 Totally. So uh, if you couldn't hear it, there would be uh, much less of a tight grip on our finances because we would recognize them as not our finances. They would be something that was entrusted or gifted to us to be a blessing to others. Yeah, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. So it would alleviate, if you couldn't hear that, it would alleviate some of that shame and guilt maybe around it as well. Because when you're starting to see it as not yours and as this divine meeting between heaven and earth, then as was said, it can be freely given and used and uh, enjoyed and all of that at the same time. Good. Good. I mean, part of what I think we're describing is that idea of stewardship. We don't, we talk about it in the church, but we kind of just mention it, but we never really talk completely about it. But that idea that uh, we don't control it, it isn't ours, it's been given. And just like the sun and the rain come down to provide 
what's needed for the vine to grow and produce the, the grapes and the wine. In a very similar way, what we have is a gift from above. And so what we are doing with our resources is actually being entrusted in a unique way to share them, to utilize them, to, to realize that they are the good of the community and those around us, not just for ourselves. Good. Another idea. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. There'd be less of a taboo nature behind talking about it, being willing to share about it. Uh, I always found it really fascinating growing up in the church because if uh, someone shared their faith or if someone went on a missions trip or if someone went and served someone downtown or if someone did uh, anything really that was perceived as being worthy of sharing a testimony about it, time would be given to say, hey, welcome up Sister Margaret, who's going to share with us about whatever. And then they would talk about service or sharing their faith or the mission trip, whatever. I, in most of my entire life, have never, ever heard someone say, hey, we have an opportunity to hear from someone who gave generously and the impact that it had on themselves and others. Because what we say is, well, we don't want one hand to know what the other hand is doing, right? But I think the point behind that is a little bit different in the scriptures than the way we tend to use it. We need to hear more stories of the way that the resources that God has given and entrusted to us are being used to affect and impact other people because that becomes contagious. When I see it happen, I want to participate. Very good. Someone else? Volunteer. Yeah, volunteer is a great way to give resources. It's a great way to give of our time. Absolutely. And likewise, when we volunteer or we give of our time and our effort and our energy, people are also challenged, encouraged to come along and do the same. Good job. Someone else? Yeah. Yes, making it personal rather than institutional, okay? So part of that idea of the meeting of heaven and earth is you don't need me, you don't need anyone on staff, you don't need an institution, you don't need any of that to do something uniquely creative with your resources, right? Just like you don't need us to host a table, you don't need the meal prescribed for you, you don't need the toast prescribed for you, all of that you've been entrusted with from God, so it's yours to run with, right? Other ideas? What else stands out? Yeah. Yeah, no financial worries for the future. So one of the things I think that the church maybe doesn't quite talk about enough is this idea that often we associate money with security, and when we don't feel like we have security, we have fear or anxiety, and so then we combine fear and anxiety around this idea of money, which then causes us to want to hoard it, keep it, not spend it, or not share it, because who knows what will happen, right? This reminds me of a passage, and I think um, it's uh, on the screen, or will be in a moment. Fear not, little flock, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Stop there for a second. God is talking to his followers, talking about this importance of being in community, and he says to them this, fear not, 
all of us, for it is your Father's good pleasure, the thing that he enjoys, the thing that he can't get enough of, to give you the kingdom, not just to give you a part of the kingdom, not just to give you like the scraps, but to say all of this because you are a son or daughter of the king is at your disposal. It's God's good pleasure to give you that. But here's what's so interesting about this passage. It's followed up with this. Therefore, sell your stuff. Give it away. Because if you know it's coming, if you know your needs are being supplied, then why would you be tight-fisted with giving it away because God's going to supply it? Right? That's the principle. I can get rid of it because I know his, it's his good pleasure to continue to meet our needs constantly. And if I have that trust and that dependence and that lack of fear, then I'm in a good, good place. A couple other ideas. Toss them out. Okay, so recognize the opportunity of growth in both its lack and its, did you say abundance? Okay, excellent. Excellent. So recognize it is an opportunity, very much like the stewardship, where you are entrusted with something, see it as an opportunity, not as an obligation. See it as an opportunity to do something rather than to not do something. I think what's uh, fascinating about that is that Oftentimes, when the church speaks of money, it talks about it as something that becomes obligatory, right? You have an obligation or a responsibility, and we talk about it through those lenses of guilt and shame that I think were mentioned in a couple spaces, right? If I'm sitting down for a toast, and if I have wine in abundance, and I come up to you and I just pour a little, just like a little... I mean, we give them to you every Sunday, these little shot glasses, right? We should start handing out big cups. But we give these little, little shot glasses. Like if I came up as the Tamada and I poured that much in your cup and I was like, let's toast to abundance. Let's toast, like, let's throw cheers to family and friends or deep love and community. Sip away, right? You'd be like, what kind of Tamada, what kind of host is this, Right? Here's what's fascinating about it. If we view it as the connection of heaven and earth, this is a moment to go like, it, it is a gift. Let's be lavish. Let's enjoy it. Let's figure out how to give more of it away. Let's like, realize that this shared commodity is this connection between heaven and earth. That something transformative is taking place. Which means that when I do it, I want to give it as abundantly as the heavens. The same way that the heavens shine down sun and rain and everything needed for it to grow is the same way that I think God supplies and meets our needs so that we can, in turn, meet the needs of others. So it's this, this desire to, to give. And I would even go as far as to say, when it's an opportunity, when you view it that way, then it becomes something that you want to give the best of. So I, I've mentioned before... I have uh, several friends that are foodies, one that is like big into wine, right? Um, my definition of big into wine is like if it's two buck chuck or whatever, great, I don't care. Let's, let's have some. He knows everything it feels like about every wine. So he's like, I can tell you about that one, I can tell you about this one. He like swirls it around, look at the legs on that, you know, and I'm like, 
I don't even want legs in my drink, right? But he, he like can tell you everything about it. But when he sits down to go over wine with me, he's not like, hey, why don't you take the stuff that's like five bucks, I'll drink the $65, $100. No. What does he want? He wants me to like taste it. Like I want you to have some of that. The good, good stuff. Why? Because something comes alive in you when you have that. Very similar, when I'm giving, when I'm creating opportunities for generosity within the community of faith, I don't want to be like, here's 10 cents for you and 10 cents for you. And No, I want you to experience the finest. I want you to realize that it isn't a gift from me, it's a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. It's a gift from God. And God gives generously to his children. Why would he not want us also to do the same, right? So that idea of an opportunity rather than an obligation is so, so important. Let me leave you with one final one before we wrap up. Final one is this. It is generosity, giving. It is the way of Jesus. It is. It is. Coker makes this statement, two of them kind of back to back. It'll be on the screen. He says, generosity that is altruistic, where the giver expects nothing in return from the recipient, is both a guiding characteristic of God and a distinguishing mark of God's reign. He goes on to say this, the Christian ideal of generosity is grounded in God's gracious act in the incarnation, the birth, death, and resurrection of God's Son, which is the, next slide, which is the, let me look at my notes, um, which is the height of sacrificial self-giving, okay? The Christian ideal of generosity is grounded in the gracious act of the incarnation, the, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of God's Son. So here's what I mean by this. The way that we view our money directly reflects what we believe. It directly reflects what we think of who Jesus is. If Jesus is gracious, you will in turn desire to be gracious. If Jesus is generous, you in turn will be generous. If Jesus is self-sacrificial, you in turn will desire to be self-sacrificial. And what we have in this, the meeting of heaven and earth, in the resources that we've been given, is this divine opportunity to embody the generosity of our King and to share with as many and as freely as possible. So with that said, let's raise a toast even though you only have communion cups. Let's raise a toast to say to the meeting of heaven and earth, not just in the wine or the meals or the community we participate in, but to the meeting of heaven and earth with all the resources that we've been graciously given. Cheers. Will you join me by standing? and I'll read this benediction over us. New community, we pray this. Abundant God, 
You made us in your image and breathed in us a spirit of generosity that is both gift and response. Move us, we pray, to give as we have received abundantly, generously, and joyfully, that our common ministry may ever bear witness to your unfailing grace. And we pray this in the name of the three in whom we are one. Amen. Have a great week, and may you find moments this week where heaven meets earth.